Let us love, sing, and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder, and he has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. As we turn to your word, we pray that you would impress these truths upon our heart. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. We are in a sermon series entitled Encountering Jesus. Every Sunday we are introducing or reintroducing ourselves to the Lord with one characteristic, considering one characteristic per Sunday, Jesus the fill in the blank. Uh, we have seen Jesus, the one with compassion, Jesus, the one with authority. The working title for this Sunday morning was Jesus, the friend of sinners. And that was the working title until I began to work on the sermon. A better title for the sermon is now Jesus, the disruptor. You'll note in our sermon notes that it lists Peter, Peter Schwanda as a preacher. Unfortunately, Peter, though doing better, is still on the road to recovery and unable to join us. So uh, I am your guest preacher this morning. So Jesus, the disruptor. I'm going to divide the passage into make three points. We're going to look at the nature of Jesus' disruption. We're going to consider why the disruption of Jesus is a threat. And then we're going to look at the hope of Jesus' disruption. So the nature of the disruption, the threat of the disruption, and then the hope of the disruption for those who like to follow along with the sermon outline. Now, so let's jump right in. Let's take a look at our passage. Our passage is really three uh, short stories, two encounters, two questions or critiques of Jesus, followed by one summary of Jesus' ministry. Two questions that begin in verses 15 and 17, uh, verses 18 and 20, the second question, and then the summary of Jesus' ministry. Now, the first question is a question to the disciples about Jesus. Why does he eat with sinners? The second question is a question to Jesus about his disciples. Why don't they fast? Now you'll, you'll note, you can hear that those are not neutral questions. This is not, hey, uh, this is what a parent would say, why are the dishes still in the dishwasher? There is an Im a not so subtle implied critique. Why is he eating with tax collectors? And he should not be. Why aren't your disciples fasting? And they should be. Let's take a look at each one of those questions. Why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? You probably are aware of this, but tax collectors of that day were not liked. I don't suppose the IRS is ever really anyone's best friend. We've received a few letters from the IRS recently. Don't worry, the glades are still solvent. We're not going to be uh, carted away. Uh, but no one really loves the IRS, but back then, Tax collectors were just notorious. Uh, they were equated with sinners. And Jesus is eating with them. Note that the religious leaders, their scruples are not that uh, he's calling sinners to repent. Like, who would object to that? You guys, tax collectors, cut it out. Uh, that's not what they're upset about. They're upset that Jesus seems to be eating with tax, or not seems to be, is eating with tax collectors and sinners prior to their repentance. You see that? Our text says nothing about Levi said, oops, I'm so sorry. Let me amend my ways. I will stop being a tax collector, and now we can have dinner. That's not what the text says. 
Now, parenthetically, we do believe that's what happened. Levi here is likely the Matthew who became the writer of the gospel. So there was reformation, but there's no hint of reformation in our passage. And that is what the, the, uh, the religious leaders object to. Jesus, don't you care about sin? So that's the first question. You don't take sin as the thinly veiled critique and why do you eat with sinners? Jesus, you don't take sin very seriously. His response, of course, is I've come for those who are sick. Next question, verse 18. It's a question to Jesus about his disciples. Why don't your disciples fast? Pharisees fast, John's disciples fast, but your followers, they just don't take religious observance seriously. All right, we saw this last week regarding the Sabbath. Your followers play fast and loose with the Sabbath. And the thinly veiled critique here is why don't your followers, Jesus, care about the religious observance, care about fasting like others? To which Jesus responds, now is not the time. So let me summarize these two questions, two thinly veiled critiques from the religious leaders about Jesus. Number one, Jesus, you don't care about bad behavior. Number two, Jesus, you don't seem to be care about good behavior either. You're not serious about sin, and you're not serious about religion. Do you think that's a fair summary of their critique? If we had these two questions and Jesus' response only, what would our picture of Jesus be? If this is all we had, uh, by way of analogy, uh, most of you know that this past week was a significant Jewish holiday. One of my neighbors and friends, is uh, the father of one of the boys on my soccer teams, is Jewish. Uh, I talked to him about the celebration, I believe it was the Jewish New Year of this past Wednesday. We got to talking about the different traditions and strands of Judaism. You likely know there's a very serious and strict, uh, I don't suggest that the others are, are less serious, but there's a very rigorous uh, strand of Judaism, orthodoxy. A strand of Judaism that may be a little less rigorous, conservative Judaism, and then a little less strict, reform Judaism, right? So how strict, how legalistic, how serious-minded are they? And if all we had was this story of Jesus, then we would think that Jesus was a reformer ahead of his time, right? Hey, the Pharisees, they have all these rules. Fasting, Sabbath, just take it easy. They have all these regulations about who you can eat with and who you can't eat with. Let's, we don't need to be so serious. That's, if all we had, Jesus would sound like a reformer ahead of his time. The problem with coming away with this picture of Jesus as a reforming rabbi before his time is that is not how Jesus describes his ministry. So look at verses 21 and verses 22. Look at how Jesus describes his ministry. He doesn't say here, I'm here to take off a little bit of the hard edges of old-time religion. Lighten up on the rules. That's not what he says. He says, I'm here to tear it down. I'm here to, I'm, I'm the new wine. I'm going to burst through 
I'm not reforming. I'm going to disrupt it, more than disrupt it. I, I'm, the, I'm the patch that's going to tear the garment in two. Jesus does not describe himself as, as a reformer. He describes himself as a destroyer, a disruptor. Now, he's clearly, clearly referring to the religious impulse of his day, the, the Pharisees of his day. But let's not discriminate. I think it's perfectly legitimate to apply his critique to the religious impulse of our day. Last week, I introduced a phrase, seculosity, a play on the word religiosity, in which the author says that everybody has a religious impulse. And that religious impulse is to be enough by what you do. And the Pharisees had that religious impulse that they're going to keep the law. And by keeping the law, they were going to be enough. They were going to use a biblical word. They would be righteous. The religious impulse is easier to rebrand than it is to extinguish. And you and I have a religious impulse to do enough in order that we would be enough. Now, your standards of what you do have changed, but don't think for a second that we are not concerned with being enough. Are you? You fill in the blanks of those things that we prioritize today. Are you environmentally sensitive enough? Are, do, do, nothing wrong with being environmentally sensitive. We ought to be stewards, but that is a standard by which we judge. Are you in? Are you out? Are you good? Are you bad? There's some do's on your list and there's some don'ts on your list. Do the things you're supposed to do. Don't do the things you're not supposed to do. And you can be enough. The list has changed. All right? The standard has changed. But the impulse has not. And as we've just seen, the problem with the religious impulse of having a list of do's and a list of don'ts is that Jesus just doesn't care. He doesn't care about the people who do the stuff they're supposed to do. He doesn't care about those people who do the stuff they're not supposed to do. He doesn't care about the fasting practices of his disciples. He doesn't care about the tax collectors and the sinners. In one word, the disruption that Jesus will bring uh, is a disruption of grace. And grace is a gift that is independent of what you do and what you don't do. I'm going to repeat a story that many of you have heard. It's a story that uh, I think is probably the best story in literature of grace. It's written by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables. You know how it begins. A hardened criminal, Jean Valjean, seeks refuge in the house of a bishop. Jean Valjean has just escaped. A kindly bishop opens his home. And of course, Jean Valjean, if you know the story, repays the kindness of the bishop by whacking him on the head and stealing the bishop's silver. Now, Jean Valjean is caught. He's returned to the bishop and to Jean Valjean's surprise. The bishop receives him with grace. 
and says, Jean Valjean, it's all a mistake, uh, you guards. It's all been a mistake. I gave Jean Valjean this silver, but you forgot the, the candlesticks. Here, have the candlesticks as well. And so Jean Valjean is, of course, just flabbergasted. He doesn't know how to respond. And as he's leaving, the bishop leans into him and whispers, Jean Valjean, you belong no longer to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy back from you. And this is, for me, one of the most powerful pictures of grace in literature. It's the hardened criminal uh, through, who's done nothing to earn it, nothing to merit, but receives overwhelming, unexpected, out of the blue kindness. And though it's not stated in our gospel, the disruption that Jesus brings is the disruption of grace. The Bible tells us that you and you and I were still sinners when we were doing the things that we were not supposed to do, not doing the things we were not supposed to do, that Jesus died for us so that we might be righteous in him. There is a righteousness that is ours, an enoughness that is ours, that is independent of what you do and what you don't do. It is a righteousness based upon what he has done for you. Namely, that he died on the cross for you. Maybe you've heard these words, we are justified by faith alone and Christ alone. We are declared right, not by your doing, not by what you don't do. You are declared right by what he has done for you. And it sounds great. John Newton wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And it's a sweet sound, but it's also a threatening sound. It is. There is a threat to grace, and here's the threat. Here's how Jean Valjean leaves. He does not leave the bishop's house saying, yes, scot-free. Jean Valjean leaves the house, and this is how Hugo, uh, Victor Hugo narrates it. He left the house. His mood was one that he had never known. Valjean felt angry, but he knew not against whom. He could not tell if he had been touched or humiliated. He thought, maybe it be, may be better to be in prison than to receive the kindness of a bishop. Can't you imagine that? Thanks for the kindness? Actually, I prefer a life that is based upon my doing and my not doing. Thanks for your grace, but no thanks. I prefer a predictable world, a world... John or excuse me, Victor Hugo writes, in opposition to the celestial tenderness of the bishop was the pride of Jean Valjean, which is the fortress of the evil man. And he felt dimly that the pardon of the priest was the hardest, the most formidable attack that his soul had yet sustained. And eventually, if you know the story, you know that, that Grace won, and Jean Valjean turned the corner by the counterpoint, of course, is the, uh, the villain, Javert, who, has, who cannot simply reconcile grace and unmerited kindness. And you know how the story ends. Not well for him. Grace is disruptive. It, it touches. It humiliates. It's out of the blue. 
Grace is disrupted because of what it asks of us. Notice that the bishop didn't say, Jean Valjean, I'm buying back from you a few days good behavior. He said, I am buying back your soul. What can repay grace? Nothing. Everything. Isaac Watts looked at the grace of God in, in, the, in the, the cross of Christ. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, the last stanza of that verse, he says, were the whole realm of nature mine. That would be an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my love, my life, my all. Like, what can you, wouldn't you prefer if God were a little less good, a little less gracious, and you could just check the box? But a God who gives all offers us the response of all in return. And that's the way it works. And there's a threat to that. The only thing that we can offer in response to the grace of God is not your doing, not your not doing. It is yourself. Christina Rossetti wrote this in that uh, Christmas carol, The Bleak Midwinter. She concludes that, that, that uh, poem slash him by saying, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give him my heart. Grace is threatening. It was threatening to them, and it's threatening to you and me. But in the threat of grace, there's also a hope. There's also a promise. Jean Valjean turned the corner. Levi, the tax collector, turned the corner. And it would be wrong for us to leave with this character that, that uh, Jesus is a, you know, a rabbi from the 60s who just doesn't care about sin or doing the right things. Because he does. The holiness of life is the high calling of the Christian. And it remains so. The question for us is, how has this come about? Does holiness focus on doing the do's and not doing the don'ts? No. The secret to the Christian of life is that the pursuit of holiness comes in the back door. This is one of the best books that I have ever read. The Principles of Theology, an Introduction to the 39 Articles. It sounds like a snoozer. This could be your devotional reading every morning. It is so good. And he writes this. So one of the articles of our religion talks about good works, meaning should Christians be concerned about doing good things? Answer, yes. And in this book he says... We come far short, he's talking to preachers, we come far short of our ministry if we're not intently fixed upon the promotion of personal holiness in the lives of our people. But how is this blessed result to be achieved? I can see that we help our people achieve this blessed result not by any reserve on preaching the righteousness that is ours in faith in Christ. Right? In other words, he's saying... The way you help your people achieve holiness is not by holding back this idea that you are right, declared right through Christ. In other words, how do you make your children be good? Just shout a little louder. No. <laughs> how does a preacher help his people become holy? Not by telling them, do better. By reminding them of who they are and whose they are in Christ. Again, Thomas writes, the gospel, the gospel plan of promoting sanctification, holiness, is to simply preach the justifying work of Christ in all its fullness, whether it be the sinner who needs righteousness, the love of God that provides righteousness in his only son, the blessed redeemer who offers himself as a sacrifice to obtain our righteousness, or as our faith that embraces it freely, as our hope that rests joyfully upon it, etc., 
The question that you and I should ask every Sunday is not, are you doing the do's and avoiding the don'ts? That's not a bad question. It's not, it's just not the primary question. And according to this passage, it's a question that Jesus just does not care about. The question that you and I should be asking is, has the old cloth been torn? Has the old wineskin been burst? Because Jesus is a disruptor. Please rise.